content warning. This podcast contains coarse language and cheeky themes. So if you've got kids in the car, colleagues in the office, or a nonna in the kitchen, chuck some headphones in. Who the bloody hell are we? Conversations about immigration and culture in Australia with your hosts, Mel and Sonia. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Sonia Diorio and joining me once again is my co-host Melissa Viola. Hi, Hi Sonia. Hello. Uh, joining us today is Tara Swamba. Hello. This is my voice. Hello. <laughs> Tara <laughs> is a dispute resolution officer, writer and public speaker. Last year they spoke at Raising the Bar and the Change Festival in Melbourne. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Very impressive stuff there. Yeah, it's really confronting to have it read back at you. (laughs) Confronting in a good way? Yes. Wow, I'm very accomplished. Yeah, I'm intimidated by myself. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's deep. So tell us a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, we can. I think it's funny. I think it's cute. I'm intimidated by myself. Um, Okay, so Tara, do you want to tell us a bit about your background? And your, I guess, your experience as a modern Australian. Uh, yeah. Well, so I'm Balinese Australian. So my dad is Balinese. Um, and my mom is kind of originally from Adelaide, but ended up in Perth. And my experience as a modern Australian. Well, I own AirPods. <laughs> so that's, I think that summarises. Tech savvy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, well, I suppose, I mean, it's kind of complicated. What does it mean to be Australian to begin with? Um, We have to define the terms first, I suppose. Uh, I think for the most part, uh, it's been a good experience. Mm. It's been challenging. It's definitely been challenging and it's changed a lot. Um, I'm 29 now and I think that uh, from the time I was younger to now, the, the change in the attitudes and how the country has developed is crazy. Um, in a positive way? Yeah, I think I think in a positive way. I mean, there's still definitely... Um, so, okay, so my dad first moved to Australia after my mom and him met. Hold on, wait, I'll start again. I Can t- can I just tell the story of how yeah, they met? Yeah, please do. Yeah, we, uh, we would love to know. Yeah. So very stereotypically, my mum was 18. She went on a holiday with her sister to Bali. Cute. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they had this real stud of a tour guide who is my dad. Oh, that's who, adorable. Yeah. I know. It was so funny. <laughs> he took them around on a tour. Um, and my mum had a lot of stuff going on in her life at the time, and I think she was very... Uh, attracted to the idea of this island. I mean, lots of people have had different experiences of Bali, but it's always presented in a very, uh, I would say, like, palatable way. Like, you get pampered, everything's pretty cheap, people look after you a lot, Um, especially back then. I mean, this is the 80s, so there was lots and lots and lots of... um, Actually, less, much less tourism, so it was a little bit more like traditional and kind of felt hidden, very, very special. Right. Less gross, drunken Aussies everywhere. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's um, a big stereotype as well from, like, Bali is, like, this idea of, like, the drunken Australian. 
Yep. So it's been difficult to live in Australia and be the product of the drunken stereotype, right. uh, especially because I'm very, I'm not like that. Um, well, that's a lie. <laughs> I'm a cooked bitch. <laughs> Who are you trying to impress? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not like that. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, so your mum was taken around by your dad. Yeah. So then they um, wrote letters for a year and spoke over the phone. And then mum went back to Bali and uh, they got married, which was kind of crazy. I don't – when I speak to my mum about it now, they're happily divorced and have been for like 20-odd years now. Um, Mum said that it was kind of this strange thing where the wedding never really felt like a wedding because it was – Balinese so she was in her like the traditional Balinese garment and the headpiece and she was just kind of like this is really great and it wasn't until she came back they got married in Australia that my mom was a bit like oh shit this is actually happening yeah I'm like 19 and I'm married right um Um, yeah same thing happened to my mom so my dad went um he's from Italy originally but he moved here and then he went back there met mom and after three weeks uh, sorry, three months. <laughs> still, three weeks. still pretty crazy. Three months, three yeah. weeks. People did crazy shit right back then. Three months. They got married. It was in the 80s. Yeah. And she just came over here, left her family, and she was 19 as well. Oh, that's so wild. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. Um, so she she kind of did that. I mean, when my dad came here, he's quite dark-skinned mm-hmm. for a Balinese person. His um, nickname in the village is Hitamanis, which means, like, black sweet. So he's like, yeah, he was very dark. He's got a pretty good attitude that comes, I think, from his religion. So his, like, big thing was he was very, very small and very dark. So he found a way to make that, like, a positive thing in his life with the nickname. Um, So he came here. My mum's dad hated him. It was pretty, I think there was a lot of tension there. So he's German. So so my great-grandma was German on, on my mum's side, if that makes sense. Um, so he was had I think he had big aspirations for my mum to marry a nice white man. Right. Um, he he was a strange guy. <laughs> he was mm. very strange. I think mum really struggled at first, um, and so did my dad. They originally moved to um, like somewhere in in Perth, Alexander Heights, which is like right. kind of near the. Um, like a factory district in Perth. Yeah. And my dad worked a factory job at a carpet store. Uh, he hated it. He was, he was telling me stories recently about how he would be walking from work home and people would be throwing eggs oh at him out of the car. Um, he got all kinds of slurs, which was pretty intense for him. And the Balinese sort of family structure is very intense. It's, like, pretty intricate. Most people will live in the village for their entire life. So if you're a male, you just continue living in the village. And when you get married, your wife moves into the village. And if you're the woman, you will go to your husband's home. So, um, yeah, you're constantly surrounded by lots of uncles and aunties and cousins. And to go from that to a Western society, which is, like, really, really individualistic, he's, like, just trying to go to work and go home and he gets egged. He he really hated it. Yeah, on top of the fact that, like, he was living in Bali and being a tour guide and having a pretty, like, awesome tourist job and then working in fucking a perfect carpet shop or (laughs) a factory. That's not a fun time. (laughs) Probably one of the only black people... uh, 
around in Perth at the yeah. time? Were there, were there, do you know if there were any other Balinese there? There's a, there's a big Balinese community now, yep. but I'm not too sure about at in the, the time. 80s. Yep. I, don't, I really don't think there was. There was maybe a few other Balinese people that had married some expats. Yep. Um, I know because we were sort of family friends with them when I was younger. But, um, yeah, definitely not a big movement. I mean, it was still really expensive to go to Bali in those days. It would have been like a seven $800 flight, like only a few airlines went there. Now you can go if you've got like an extra hundred Three bucks. bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, people, so people go a lot more. Um, but back then it was, yeah, much less frequent. My parents kind of went in between the two for a while. Um, but my mom always wanted to have my brother and I here. So I have an older brother. So they had him first, uh, obviously. <laughs> the older one. <laughs> um, and they had me second. Uh, and then when I was six months old, we moved back to Bali. So my family kind of lived in one bedroom in the village um, and it was me, yeah, me, my brother, my mom and my dad and then like all of my dad's siblings and my dad is like one of 12 um, and then there's like all the aunties and uncles and all the grandparents. So it was quite overwhelming for my mom. She ended up convincing one of my um, uncles. He had a bit of land and she was like, can I build a dwelling on the land? So then we built our own little house and um, my family moved out of the main village, which was much better. But I could already like... Just hearing the story, you can see how different the two lifestyles are. Yeah, absolutely. And was I that mean, a re- sorry? Was that a radical thing to do to like to move out of the village and just kind of live by yourselves? Yeah, people. Were, I don't think people were very happy. Um, so the other, I guess, the other element that makes it kind of complicated is in Balinese culture there is a class structure. So it's kind of not dissimilar to the uh, Indian class structure, yeah. where you have um, like the low caste. There's like a there's kind of two middle ones, and then there's high caste. So my family is a uh, from from the high caste. So we can trace our lineage back to um, like the first kind of. It's supposed to be the king of Bali, but I don't really yeah. know how accurate that is. Um, but that's I guess <laughs> all these caste systems have these little tails and yeah. stuff in them. So does that mean if you're a high caste, if you can trace it back to royalty? Yeah, pretty much. So in my name, so my middle name is Ida Ayu, which is um, just a title. So yeah. in Bali, my name is Ida Ayu, Tara Dewi Swamba. But in, in Australia, obviously no one recognises my princess heritage, which, <laughs> which is quite frankly <laughs> fucked. Well, you need to start wearing more crowns. I know, I've got to peel my own fruit here. What is this shit? <laughs> Go back. <laughs> what are you doing here? So you've moved back to Indonesia as a kid. Or yeah. You are born here, moved over there. Yeah. Do you know what your mum's parents, like your grandparents were feeling about that, having you guys go over there already kind of not, I mean, you said your grandfather didn't like your yeah, dad. Yeah, well, like my mum's and my granddad's story is pretty complicated they still don't really talk and now he's dying he's got like stage four um liver cancer I think so they've only just now uh spent any time together um and I think that's very hard for my mom because during that period of time he kind of cut all ties with her Mm. so it's a combination of a lot of really complicated stuff but I guess uh it was really easy to say that he never agreed with who she married um and that was a big part of it he always wanted a relationship with my brother and I to some degree which I 
found kind of strange, but he was definitely, um, it was weird. It was weird. I remember one time we went to Christmas at his place and I was probably like four years old. Uh, for, no, I must have been older. I must have been six. But he um, had got presents for all of the grandkids but me and my brother. Oh. And it was just kind of strange stuff like that. I mean, I didn't give a shit because I was like, whatever. But it really affected my mom, as you can imagine, because yep. it was a reflection of their relationship. Yeah, and the division in that, that's just like, that's pretty awful. Yeah, it's kind of weird. All the white kids get a present <laughs> and then you're this yeah. like... And do you think um, it was something at the time that you didn't really think of much and then upon re- reflection as an adult you're like, actually, that was so far. Yeah, that's yeah, really there's lots. I think there's lots of things where I look back and I'm like, why would you do that to just children? Yeah. yeah. Like I find that very strange. Um, I probably did have a few things when I was like younger that I definitely thought it was like a, a strange thing. One, like, but yeah, when you look back on the memories now, I'm like, that's really odd. Like, yeah. what is going through your head to justify like that? But it's, it's the racism. It's just like a really ingrained, like, re- idea of, um, I guess, people of color that yep. others don't like. Yeah. On the flip side, how did your dad's parents respond to him marrying your mom? Oh, yeah, they love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like a, yeah, like, it's kind of funny. Mum wasn't really made, I think, <laughs> for the Balinese sort of way, but they loved her. I think they were all very receptive of her. Um, at her wedding, you kind of wear these big sort of... Um, hair implants and they're jet black uh so my mom had this like blonde hair with like jet black hair like hair extinction yeah my mom's like super white like green eyes blonde hair she's never tanned like she can barely make a freckle like it's so she yeah there's all these really funny pictures and they still hang in the village um for like a tooth filing ceremony which is a big rite of passage in my culture and they've got like my mom with all of my like uh other older cousins uh, so I'm like the youngest cousin from that generation there's about 40 cousins wow. uh, yeah so then there's like this really great picture of them um, I think they were all they all really were like they embraced her on one hand yep. but I think on the other hand a lot of things get lost in um, translation I'm gonna say and I think yep. a lot of the time I mean so I had this argument with my dad when I went to visit him recently. I still go back probably once a year. He was talking about how my nephew, he inherited some money when my uncle died and he wanted to split the money amongst his two sisters. And my dad was saying that my uh, cousin shouldn't do that. The male cousin shouldn't do that. He should keep the money. And I was immediately like, that's so fucked. Like, men get to keep the money. What is this shit? And we got into... I was more curious about his reasoning, like, how could he think that that's okay? Um, And after a while, he sort of explained how the whole system works. So so the two female cousins, they're already married. They've left the village and they are married to... um, quite wealthy people who have their own village and their own assets. So 
if the male cousin sells the assets and divides the money, the money goes to a different village and goes to a different support network. It doesn't stay in our village, in our community. So there's a lot of people in my family that actually don't work. Uh, Mental health and stuff isn't um, really well researched in Bali, but I definitely have some cousins who are like living with disabilities um, and all kinds of other stuff or who can't work or who have children. So the property that we have isn't just for the people who own it. We support a whole bunch of other people and wow. cousins and extended families. So the I think the structure, while it is sort of like a gendered lens, it was probably just the easiest way to divide assets and to retain money in like one area. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what he was explaining. And I was like, oh, my God, it's totally not really about gender in that way. It's um, trying to protect the more vulnerable members of our family, which are, like, the elderly who can't work anymore, the young who haven't been able to work yet, and my family members that are disabled. So um, when he explained it, I was like, oh, that's just such a totally different system to the individualist system that the Western culture has. So it's really hard to, I guess, like explain and to see that yeah yeah i summarize like a four-hour argument (laughs) (laughs) it's a sink diet yeah that's but yeah it is interesting to learn about um what a uh different structure it is in terms of more community focused rather than individual. Yeah. Um, I worked at a a university in student theatre and film and uh, we did a theatre co-production with an Indonesian theatre company. Yeah. And uh, seven of our students got to go over to Indonesia and rehearse a production with seven Indonesian students. Cool. And then they performed in Indonesia and then came back and performed the show in Australia as well. And uh, from that really brief experience, I found out that um, the people who were accepted into the project in Indonesia, the students, they were didn't celebrate or commiserate whether they got in or not because here it was more about like, yes, I got in, I get to do this project. But over there it was like, well, you're not going to celebrate or commiserate individually because it's kind of like you're a, a whole yeah. Kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense. It's really um, – it's kind of strange to describe how the network works. Yeah. And there's always going to be people who um, – I guess it's, it's just like organic socialism maybe. Yeah. Uh, and that was really difficult f- for my mum to accept and to understand coming from a totally individualistic yeah. experience where she was really like – um, I think she found a lot of the gossiping difficult. I think she found the economic structure selfish and kind of felt as the one who's perceived to be more privileged, right, because we do have this, um, I guess, inherent idea of what we think privilege looks like, mm-hmm. um, and to have her resources drained. And I think it made a lot of distrust for her. And then eventually their relationship broke down and it didn't really work for them anymore. But I think a big a big part was just like really underestimating how difficult it is to uh, explain these concepts and to understand these concepts and to experience them. It was difficult because my dad was so uninterested in any of that stuff. Yep. And um, 
you know, they didn't have the best spirit to divorce. So a lot of the time the West people that I'd met would be like, your dad's a loser. And a lot of the time I would be like, is he? And then I would kind of be like, he doesn't have any of the material stuff that anybody else has. Like we grew up from in a pretty – my dad was – pretty poor when he was younger Um, and he was also like a gambling addict which is also another big part of like Balinese culture so it was really hard to not judge him through like a western lens right and I think a big part of that was it kind of really highlighted the internal struggles that I was having that I found really difficult to articulate up until maybe a year ago so it's like 28 years of experience and reflection to kind of get to a point where I can see that the two parts are just like conflict like con- like yeah. constantly you have these two totally different models well I'm yeah. like resentful that we left Bali but I'm so grateful for the opportunity to to grow and to learn in a western context like um, I f- there's a lot of liberation in an individualist society, but then I like lack my connection to community and I was definitely closest to my aunt before I left and I feel upset and resentful that I've lost that really maternal figure in my life and it's like it's so hard to try and make sense of that when you're young. Yeah. So you moved back to Australia when you were six. Was that like a huge culture shock? Uh, yeah, I was super depressed. I, I, like, don't think that my parents really knew, but I had, like, a lot of problems adjusting. Um, Where did you move to? We I moved into my nan's place in the outer suburbs of West Australia in, oh, okay. a, like, a predominantly so it, kind of white yeah. area. Yeah, and I think um, it's always it, kind of hard because we were, like, definitely victims of racism when we were in primary school, um, but it was always kind of weird because I think the only other non-white people that they ever encountered were Indigenous Australians. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I have anything like that type of experience, but they would, like, call us similar slurs. And a lot of the time I'm like, well, you can't even slur me off right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Racism makes no sense in any way. Yeah. I was just in the coke. Yeah, that's not... Yeah. Um, But, yeah, that sounds like such a wild shift going from a lot of people around and in the household and community and moving to WA, which is, you know, very remote. Yeah, and it was just my mum and me and my brother. Um, And mum sort of struggled a lot because she kind of left Bali without anything really. They'd had – we used to own a restaurant, which was very fun, um, but she didn't really have anything from that. Um, so she came back. I remember cleaning houses with her when I was like six years old and she sort of put herself through beauty college, very Greece. Um, <laughs> did she drop out or? <laughs> no, she made it, thankfully. Yes, not thank a beauty school dropout. <laughs> it's an anti-Greece story. Yeah, she did not go back she to high school. She did not listen to that song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but she did a really good job, I think, but, uh, it was, we kind of, my brother and I spent a lot of time with my great grandparents um, and we would just like walk, walk from school there and wait for mom or wait for dad. So it was, I, yeah, it was hard. I think I kind of underestimate how difficult that period was. It was difficult for them. Uh, and it was hard for us. And I yeah. think that, um, they didn't really know. I talked to mom about it recently and she was like, I had no idea the type of like racism you're experiencing, but she was probably close to it when we were very young. So I remember we were shopping once and someone said, I didn't know you could adopt Asian children. Mm. And my mom was like, they're mine. 
so there was this real thing where people would be like, where did you adopt them? Um, And mum would always get quite upset, I think, about that. So did you go, did you have any schooling when you were in Indonesia? Yeah, I went to an international school, um, but that only went until I was five, which was lucky because then we kind of moved back in that period. Um, But my brother went to a Indonesian school um, because the international school finished after kind of kindergarten. So he stayed back uh, a year when we came here because he could only read and write in Indonesian. But we actually have kind of an interesting experience with the language. So my first language was Indonesian and Balinese uh, and so was my brother's. But after we came back to Perth to live, we never spoke it uh, and I actually forgot a lot of my Balinese and Indonesian. You didn't speak it with each other? No, we didn't talk to each other and we wouldn't talk to my mum. And it was this strange, like, protest. Maybe it was just this fear of being different. But the two of us never spoke and we were so, so fluent. And I really regret it. Um, It wasn't a conscious choice either. It was really hard to understand. It was, like, kind of in the three three to four years. So my dad moved out here again when I was in year four and I first moved here when I was in year, like, one. So in that three-year period, we just, like, shoved that right in the repressed pocket Mm. and just, like, never spoke our language, which, yeah, it's very sad. It's sad, but it makes sense. Like, you're going through this change. Like, your dad's not with you. You're in this country that you've never really lived in. Like, you have no real memories of. And then you're also getting attacked for being you by these, like, white Perth people. It's easier and safer to um, just speak English. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess it was, but it's strange. I have no recollection of ever making the conscious choice not to do it. It just happened. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Tara, you recently wrote a piece for Queer Stories called There's Absolutely No Gay Balinese People. Yep. Great. That's the title. Amazing. I love that title. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, I did. I wrote that uh, so I'd gone back to Bali and I'd sort of had – I was having a lot of dreams. So around this period of time I was thinking about a lot and it would probably been about four years since I'd gone back. Um, and my dad has moved back there since with my younger sister and his um, – like his wife, his his new partner. Uh, I gotta stop calling her new partner. They've been married for years. <laughs> <laughs> this is like eight. Yeah, so I went over to Bali. Um, I went to visit dad, and I just kind of wanted to connect to that part of myself. So for a long time, uh, my relationship with my dad was quite complicated. He wasn't really around very much. Um, kind of after I turned thirteen, he was like, well job's done, that's it, don't need to raise you anymore. Uh, And I think I found that pretty difficult. So he moved back when you were in grade four? Yeah, he he came, we lived with him for a few years. Uh, My mum had had a partner and they were kind of like doing their own thing and mum was working full time. Um, So we lived with him full time and my mum had us on the weekends, so it was kind of like a big thing and dad was sort of the single parent but he was going through a lot I mean it's hard it's hard I don't want to get into too much about stuff with him but it's hard because he's such a big part of my connection to my culture so he was pretty shit he was a pretty shit dad 
Um, we've all been there, am I right? Um, so for a long time, I think the whole, the, my coping strategy was to be like, he's too difficult. Like, I don't really want to go back home. But it's hard because it's such a big part of you. You're so removed from it. Absolutely. I'm in a part where my memories don't play any role in a Western culture. The lessons that I've learned don't really fit here. There's nothing really that reminds me of home. Um, it's It was hard. It was hard to feel connected. And I think that um, a big part of maybe the motivation as well to kind of disregard the sort of Balinese part was a combination of people um, make a lot of jokes about being Balinese and lots of jokes about me selling, like, good cheap Rolexes. Uh, They're bad cheap Rolexes, but (laughs) jokes on them. Um, and And lots of other things. I don't... I think it's particularly glamorous and I was very resentful to, I guess, the, like, trendy Asians that are kind of around in a Western context. Like Australians really fetishize like Japanese and Korean people at the moment. Um, But any kind of like jungle Asians, not really the flavor yet, I guess. Um, But you you can kind of see how like I guess I was was quite resentful, I think, of things like that. Um, And I was also super gay. And it was something that I've always really known about myself. Mm. Um, a lot of people ask, like, when did you know? Uh, and it was just like I just always sort of knew. You, yeah, you just never knew. You just never felt any different. No, you and just I knew. Yeah, and I told someone before that I realised I was, like, gay before I learnt shame. So I, was, I never felt, like, ashamed about being gay. Yep. Like, I don't have any internalised homophobia, which I think a lot of people struggle with because yep. um, I was always, like me being gay is the most pure thing in the world and other people are like it's something that I don't trust other people with and that's how I kind of grew up like always knowing that aspect of myself before I learned that it was bad I was like okay other people say it's bad but I know that it's just who I am so it was kind of this thing where I just knew that there weren't any gay Balinese people around. I had no gay Balinese people role models. There was um, we, we used, there was a one guy who came, um, and you can tell that people are probably that way, but they've been married and they've had children, so there's no real like framework. Yeah, and I just thought that if I ever wanted to be myself, a big part of it would mean not being Balinese, which is ironic because it's also a huge part of myself. So it was um, it was really hard. I think my solution was to just be like, you know, especially with the inheritance thing as well, like uh, the the woman not getting anything and not being valued. I was like, fuck this. Like, I don't want to be a part of this. like suppressing experience. Um, And I just like put it in the bin and didn't do anything about it for quite a while. I went to I went to Bali to visit, but I wasn't really interested in like going to temple or to pray or anything. You, would you say you were going over there to visit family and it was more like just seeing people and being with people rather than like taking in home slash culture? Yeah, I would do it. I would still go and do all of the stuff. Like I had my tooth filing ceremony and I had um, you have this ceremony when you get your period. 
I know, right? What's the worst thing you can do to someone <laughs> with two X chromosomes? It's like they get their period and then you're like, we're having a parade. <laughs> what? Please walk yeah. us through yeah. the period <laughs> ceremony. You, you can't just ceremony. gloss over that. Yeah. Come on, step by step. <laughs> you like, Is there red velvet cake? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a period party. It's not like a Gwyneth Paltrow period party. It's oh, like... Just shatter my <laughs> dreams. I'm no sorry. vagina candles are burnt. <laughs> yeah, we steam vaginas and talk about our feelings it's like you get put in this really really tight like corset type exactly thing. what you want to be in when you've got your period yeah, something so everyone can see your little fat uterus you like you're really tight tight sarong on then you got this like metal headpiece it's like metal and gold leaf it's very beautiful but it is made out of like spikes and prongs that they like weave through your hair so it's resting just nice and neatly on your scalp. Wow. And then um, it is 42 degrees and, like, 300% humidity and you have to walk around the village and people bring you gifts. Ooh, what um, kind of gifts? It's always sarongs. <laughs> right. So I have, like, 8,000 sarongs. Um and you like yeah, do some prayers and and go to you, you go to separate um, temples and stuff, and then you just that's it, it's done. That is so intense because I feel like I got my period and I was like, oh, I don't even want to tell my mom, but also like someone get me some pads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. worried about getting my period on camp, let yeah. alone having something giant and heavy on my head. And no, that's village corset. news. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you get your period. Everybody gets their period. <laughs> Yeah, it was a period ceremony. And what what <laughs> what is the uh, tooth filing ceremony? So tooth filing ceremony is your final coming of age. So you have your period ceremony, which starts everything, and then your tooth filing ceremony is when you're accepted as an adult. And it's exactly what it sounds like. They file your teeth. So you, you um, get dressed. You have an even bigger headdress with the gold yep. leaves and the spikes on your, on your scalp. Um, you have this really glamorous uh, sarong and really beautiful stuff. And then um, you lie down on like a cane bed uh, with your head backwards and your mouth wide open. Uh, and this guy who is definitely not a dentist <laughs> leans over you with a tooth file that has been used for – it's okay, it's not a tooth file. It's just a regular metal file from Bunnings. But right. the Bunnings equivalent 3,000 years ago, and it's rusty, it's disgusting, and they put it on the top of your mouth and they, they just grate backwards and forwards from your, like, canine to your, like, other canine. So from here to here. They just from the bottom to make the bottom straight. The top. The top. So they make the top teeth oh, yes, straight. Yes, yes, the top, yeah. How does that right. feel? Um, it feels like somebody filing your teeth down. <laughs> <laughs> with a giant metal ah. kind of thing. I was very afraid of this part because occasionally you'll go around Bali and you might see someone with a black tooth and that's because they, it was filed wrong and it's hit a nerve and the tooth has died. Oh, my God. So obviously, like, around that time is when you start noticing shit because you're like, oh, I got that tooth filing ceremony next week and you start looking at all your cousin's teeth and you're like, whoa, they really... You got four black teeth, all right. Uh, <laughs> like, And there's no... They yeah. had the apprentice tooth filer on that day. <laughs> yeah, and my dad has this really awful um, 
this really awful habit of being like, it's just pretend. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'll lie down and I'll be like, that is not pretend. You're like, he's filing my teeth. This is actually happening. Wow. Yeah. You mean, when he says it's just pretend, like him just being like, mm, go with the flow. Or just does do he mean it. like literally, it's not real, lol. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think he means like, oh, it's it's not it's not going to be that bad. It's like just pretend, just like okay. do it. And then when I'm like, okay, well, if he's not really going to find my teeth, I'll do it. But it always happens. So wait, sorry, how old were you when this occurred? I was eighteen. Wow. Yeah. So I was um, eighteen. My brother was twenty-one. Mm. So that's kind of the age that you do it, sort of anywhere between like 23 to kind of like 17 around that time. You, it's quite an expensive ceremony. So my brother and I did it with like six of my cousins. Um, so there's quite a lot of you and uh, the family kind of shares the cost of the ceremony. It was really nice, I think. Um, it was, yeah, the, the symbolism behind it is that it removes the rest of the animal in you. So Balinese people believe that when a child is born, they're like a god. So you can't put the child down on the ground. You can't bring the child into the kitchen. Then um, as they age, they become more animalistic. So young children kind of just do whatever they want, which is uh, great because kids just play and they have so much fun. And I don't think in a Western context we let kids play enough so that when they become adults you know we don't really play very much um but they still have that like childlike spirit when they get older which is great um and then the tooth filing is to symbolize that you're an adult now and you don't have your animal teeth anymore I like that a lot better than being raised Catholic because when you're born, it's like you're a sinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're yeah. a god. That sounds way better. Yeah, it's nice, isn't yeah. it? You're born a god. Your first reconciliation, you're what, like nine or ten, and they're like, confess. And I lied. Confess all your sins. <laughs> Instead of confessing, I just made up things, which is like, do I then go and confess that I lied what in my head? Oh, you know, like I was mean to my brother. I had a fight with my mom. I threw the Nintendo 64. Full remote yeah. at the wall. There's a lot of guilt and shame involved. Yeah. So you wrote this piece, yeah, um, and that was kind of discussing your sexuality and your cultural identity yeah. and how you're feeling. You didn't have any of these uh, Balinese representations of, of a queer person. Have you ever found that? No, I, I really haven't. I um. So I guess yeah. Eventually I was a bit like, all right, well, I'm as Balinese as I am queer. Eventually it's like doing a lot of damage for me to keep saying that I'm not this thing and I don't want to be this thing and it's harmful because so many people that I love are that thing and and so many memories that I have are about that. So I did a lot of work. Um, I went to all these different temples with my dad and we meditated a lot in this trip I kind of spent a month doing like a pilgrimage um and I I really got in touch with that part and I was like okay well these two parts are never going to be like super chill um but there is a way where I cannot live in the fear of those two parts anymore and start to see it as an opportunity to be like the first super queer Balinese motherfucker in town. Be your own hero, bitch. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I like basically did that for a year. Um, and it's 
been working out pretty well for me, I think, actually. Um, I've been really enjoying being those things and just, like, being peaceful with those two parts. So when I went back recently, um, I went back in October. So I had this, like, great enlightening moment. It was really amazing. Um, I wanted to talk to my dad about it. And I went to this, like, clairvoyant with him. Uh, so she read my spirits. And um, she said that there was – it was actually kind of scary. She said that there was um, someone, a man in my life that I wanted to have a good conversation with. And he had very, very, very dark skin. And I was like – I think it's my dad. Mm -hmm. And she was like, maybe a lover. And I was like, no, I think it's my dad. (laughs) And then um, I was like, he's got really dark skin. And then I told the story. Um, People in the village used to call him Hitam Manis. That's his, like, nickname. He's so dark. And then she, like, looked at me and then was like, that's the name of this card, like the card that she'd, like, pulled. And I was like, all right, so i got to have this conversation with my dad. She's like, you want to be close to him, but you, like, can't do it. You have to talk to him. And my dad avoided me for like four days I was like there's something I want to talk to you about I think maybe we should have a chat and then he just like counted down the days and then dropped me off the airport and was like bye see ya so it's been difficult to ever whoa yeah do you think sorry I just want to go back a bit do you think so he did he go with you to the clairvoyant or you just went by yourself I went by myself he okay. dropped me and when so he picked he me up you he was going. like anything interesting and I was like uh-huh. yes we have to have a conversation so you sparked that it wasn't like he dropped you off and then was suddenly like yeah can't talk to Tara no 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 he I was like we should talk about it we've had other conversations that have like alluded to I guess the queerness um there's been times where he's been like when are you getting married and I'm like well, it's probably not going to happen. Um, and he's been a bit like, okay, um, why not? And I've just been like, I don't want to get married to a Balinese person. So there's a lot of pressure in the caste system to marry within the caste. Yeah. Um, and he's just been a bit like, mm, you know. So there, are, the marriage topic's quite complicated and he's met most of my big um, exes, like my long-term partners, and he's been great about them. Yep. Uh, he, like, dropped me and an ex off to, like, a really nice, um, like, uh, what do you call it, villa in Ubud that just had, like, one king bed and a pool. And he was Whoa. like, have fun. So he he's not, doesn't seem homophobic in any way, but I think he still just really wants me to have children that are connected to the culture, which makes sense. But then um, I'm also trans, so he um, he's pretty good at just, like, He's always been the more supportive one. So when I was a kid, I used to always want to wear the same clothes as my brother and just, like, dress in, like, a soccer shirt and soccer shorts even though I didn't play the sport and I had no affiliation with it whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, It was just, like, a jaunty little... I just want to bend it like Beckham, okay? Yeah, Yeah, that was my reason. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I want to wear a Manchester United outfit. Um, And he would let me, whereas my mom would be very much like, I got you this wool skirt and this, like, little top (laughs) with beads on it. (laughs) Yeah, so he was really chill about that. And even when I went back last time, we have the gamelan, which is kind of like a xylophone, but it sounds sort of like a water xylophone, if you can imagine what that sounds like. Um, And normally the men just play it, but I was like, can I come to xylophone practice? And he was like, yeah, right. And we just played the gamelan. It was like me and like 20 guys from um, from my banjar and we just, like, hung out and played. So I, he's so chill about stuff, but he's, like, weird about other things and I just I cannot read him. 
So it was, yeah. I mean, that's pretty mixed signals being like, I accept that you're going to stay with this woman in a room by yourself and that you can do all of these like kind of like traditionally male activities but you're going to get married, right, and, like, have babies and mm. be this traditional person. It's kind of interesting that these two juxtaposing ideas can be fine in his mind. Yeah, I don't I don't mm. really get it. Well, do you think that's maybe because there are gay people, um, as you've said, in Bali who you feel are gay but have then gone on and had marriages and families? Yeah, and I think conformed. so. So I w- reached out to... Um, so um, Maeve Marsden, who, like, hosts Queer Stories, she's the best. She actually messaged awesome. me and said that she was going to be performing Queer Stories for Ubud's Writers Festival, which is in Bali, and that she'd got in contact with um, an individual called Bo, who's amazing, who works for this, like, uh, AIDS education sort of gay Bali um, organisation. And I met up with him when I was there last and we had a beer. He's Australian, but he's living over there at the moment. And we kind of talked about it. And he was like, yeah, I think after a while, the gay Balinese people just kind of stop coming. A lot of them get married or they get murdered or they're just like not around anymore. And he said it was particularly hard because there's not a lot of women that are queer. Um, Mm. It's very like undercover. So it was really difficult I guess because I, when I'd heard about the organisation first, I was like, fuck yes, gonna like chat to them, gonna meet some heaps of gay people, it's gonna be great. And the reality of like, oh, so the fears that I had and the concerns that I had weren't just like me being paranoid and me being um, afraid of just like being who I am. There's like actual dangers in in Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it was that was always kind of difficult to kind of, to come to terms with, and it was a yeah, it was very sobering. I was I remember being very happy that I'd met them and I met a few other gay Indonesian people from different islands, um, but also just like the reality of of it was also pretty sad. It's like one of the only countries in the world where um, the I guess protections around sexuality have actually gone backwards, and um, yeah, like. You can't even, yeah, you can't say anything that has queer in it. You can't talk about being gay. There's no, um, yeah. yeah, there's nothing about it. And I think it kind of goes back. I I used to take it very personally and get very upset, but it kind of goes back to their welfare model. And I think about that a lot now where it's like if you have gay babies, they're not going to have babies and the village suffers. So it's this like... Yeah, it's like an economic thing more than it's anything else. And when I see it like that, I get less upset. Yeah. But um, it's not great. No. I do remember when I was working at Student Theatre and we had that co-production um, with Indonesia and um, my boss bringing up a whole range of things that they were restricted in doing on stage there, whereas here you can literally, you can say anything you want, you can do anything you want, but he said that um, he was told that uh, people, men weren't allowed to kiss men on stage yeah. and women weren't allowed to kiss women. Um, and also they weren't allowed to bring up religion. Um, there are a whole range of things that here we wouldn't even second guess. We can, no, if, if anything, it's expected. You're going to a live theatre show. You're going to get expected. shocked. Yeah. 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 But People are going to get offended. <laughs> Kisses, 
everyone <laughs> involved. Yeah, actually, one of the three times I've seen a male penis has been on stage. Just, <laughs> just got it on stage. He was totally nude. Right. That's I'm not sure about the I'm, and I'm not sure about the rules around nudity there, but oh, no, they would have to that. be yeah. Actually yeah. there was a really interesting um story about a pop star at the time when I was a teenager, people loved him. His name was Peter Pan, that was his stage name. And he like sung this song Ada Upa Dung on Moot. Great listen if you've got the time. Balinese pop. I just I can't imagine Peter Pan just being like I don't know. It's like techno music in my head. No, he, no. He wants like, to be young forever. He's a raver for sure. Yeah. yeah. Think like it was the early 2000s. So think like Huberstank. Oh, like, right. You know, like the Balinese like Huberstank. Yeah. Like okay, the, cool. lots of rain in the video clip. Yeah. But um, he had sex with his girlfriend and they recorded it and it got leaked and people Oof. saw it and then he got put in prison for mm. pornography. Holy shit. So um, that was pretty dire. And this was like a big public figure. Um, so it was something like that where he was, I mean, in our law, he would be considered the victim. Um, but he produced pornography, which was a crime over there. So he spent quite a bit of time in prison, I believe. Yeah. Whoa. And was public consensus like damning I no i think it was just kind of like that's the law mm-hmm. i it's a lot it's very difficult because there's a lot of um racial tensions as well about it uh so it's a predominantly muslim um I, like country and bali sits as a very hindu mm-hmm. um culture there but they have adopted a lot of i guess the prudities around um sex and sexuality and there's lots of taboo subjects over there that people just like don't talk about so like domestic violence is quite normalized um violence against queers are definitely normalized one of the worst i think memories that i have and at the time i was like really leaning into it was a cousin of mine used to take me and my brother in the car on the back of motorbikes to look at um I guess, like, trans uh, Balinese women who were sex workers and they would throw rocks at them. <sighs> so it was, like, this really, I guess, hectic thing where it was just so, yeah, so normalised. It's so it's really hard to explain. And I, was, I definitely perpetrated that and I have a lot of guilt around it. But it was one of those things where it's, like, did they take me knowing that I was probably going to be queer did they take me just because it was an activity that they did? It's it's hard. Like, the homophobia is very palatable, but I think it's palatable to everyone. But I wonder if it's targeted at individuals that you know are probably queer and yeah. whether that's part of the, like, beating into um, submission because it's like, you know, you're either throwing rocks or you're getting rocks thrown at you. Um, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I know. Deep. Yeah, heavy. Yeah, (laughs) that's a really heavy thing for anyone, especially a kid or like a young person to be involved in. Let alone if you identify that way or not. Like even as an adult growing older and realizing, hey, I was involved in harassing someone with or without hate crime. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's a really heavy thing to put on a kid. Yeah, it's a lot. It's uh, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. There's a lot to be. I think upset about um, in within the system there. Uh, it's it's hard though, but it's part of my history. Yeah. So I want to try and own it a little better. But it's yeah, some of the stuff is 
less desirable. It's and and Bali itself, I think, is very marketed as this really um, beautiful island oasis, like it's the the island of the gods, and in yeah. many ways it is. Um, but also the it does party have, gods. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> the Bintang gods. Um, no, but it does have a really like intense, dark, complicated history. Um, and then I think part of it's so well protected from tourists, like a lot of things that I've experienced would be very difficult to describe. And there's lots of, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. Tourists stick to the tourist areas and tourist... Yeah, I think as well, and lots of people go and they meditate and they go to retreats and stuff right. with, with people and they think they're experiencing the culture, but I kind of always joke that it's like, oh, that's like uh, like the Kmart brand of Bali, like right. it's like the polished marketed one. But well, It makes sense. You're not, uh, you're not surrounded by the community. You're not like ingrained in like regular day-to-day activities. You are in a resort or you're being taken around by a person like it there's always it's not a front but it's a beautiful idea yeah but that's what tourism is and unless you're actually living in a community you're never actually going to see the true side of it when you've been in bali have you experienced aussies behaving badly oh yeah i was one of them oh right yeah fuck the first time i got drunk i was like 13 in bali um with my brother and when we got like maybe 10 of our cousins just wasted. So my teens was very like that. I was like, had access to a lot of alcohol. I could do whatever I wanted. No one really cared. The Australian and the Balinese really liked each other at that point in time. And it kind of boiled over to a a lot of bad behavior, a lot of smoking, a lot of like, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a good time. But, um, yeah, I think I try and distance myself from the Australian side when I'm there. Yeah. Which is like I just say that <laughs> Good I'm, move. Yeah. <laughs> I just say I'm Balinese. Yeah. And then I cop a lot of shit when I'm over there because it's like they'll call me like uh, Dayu Bule, which is like um, like like princess tourist. Right. You know, stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is like it's fine, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I... I try not to go near the touristy parts when I'm home. Yeah. I'm more just hanging out in my village. Um, I like doing the more traditional stuff. Well, I'm trying to think, what did I do? In October, what did I do? I went to temple a few times. I meditated a lot, hung out with my dad, went for a bike ride, like visited my aunt and uncle who were high priests there. I live a very wholesome life when I'm there now. I my, would probably do, I don't think that would last longer than two weeks. You know, like if I lived there, I would probably still be like, oh, I can't take this. But when I'm there, it's kind of nice to indulge, like, the more wholesome stuff. And I have a younger sister who's eight, so I do love spending time with her and, like, going to time zone and stuff like that with her. You get called princess tourist when you're over there. Do you – I mean, like, that makes sense that you would start resenting not properly being identified as Balinese. Do you feel this, like, really awkward, like, tension between not being one way or the other? I think that nothing is more palatable when it comes to trying to fit into binaries like race because we still view people as being like one race and one culture or or nothing. And if you don't fit neatly into those things, uh, other people we have this like such strong connection to like othering and casting other people out that when we see their experiences, like I have a very Western lens and it's probably scary to my Eastern family to some degree and the ways in which they view 
my individualism is inherently selfish. And then here I think that maybe my collectivism is viewed as naive and juvenile and hopeful when it shouldn't be. So it's it's so hard. It's so hard. And even when people say, where are you from? And, and I just like to answer that I'm Balinese sometimes. That doesn't really feel right because I don't think that I can speak for Balinese people because I don't know yeah. 100%. And a lot of people ask lots of questions and I don't know how to answer it. I don't know if I'm going to answer it right. And I have to represent this whole island of people and I'm going to fuck it up. And it's it's the same. It's the same regardless of where I am. I have that constant tension of not really ever feeling relaxed. Constant push-pull. And it, it's yeah. interesting what you say about the othering because, yeah, racism is othering and putting people in a certain box but when there's someone like you who you can't put you in a box because yeah. you belong to two completely different uh cultures and identities yeah it's really hard um yeah. and you can't really but, like other someone when they're not really not different so you just you just left in a bit of a weird space where you know someone wants to be racist to you but they don't really know how yeah <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today yeah, thank and you for sharing, sharing your thank stories. You. Thanks for having me. Uh, about ceremonies and <laughs> different Balinese culture and your experiences in Australia. It's been so fascinating. Yeah. It's uh, really fascinating to me that Indonesia is one of a, is our closest neighbour, essentially, but Australians really know little about it. No. They go to Bali and party, and that's about it. Yeah. But there is definitely... Uh, at, at the end, can you just get your listeners to do a quick poll? Who didn't realise Bali was part of Indonesia? Because um, yeah, I feel yeah. like most people still are like, Bali's its own thing, but it's yeah, not. And people will be like, I'm going to Bali. Yeah. As though that's a country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Thank Tara. You. Thank you. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Who the Bloody Hell Are We? If you like what you're hearing, subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Audio production and original music is by Andre Christodoulou. Search for us on Facebook for more information about our guests, fun content and to keep the conversation going.